Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 15 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week we recap the Canadian Olympic pre-trials from just about every angle with Olympic gold medalist and two-time world champion Russ Howard who was on the broadcast team for TSN in Summerside. We also chat with Jim Cotter of Team Morris who earned their spot at the trials in Ottawa this past weekend. Al Cameron of Curling Canada joins us to discuss the situation surrounding multiple tiebreakers at the pre-trials and Devin Aru of CBC Sports shares his thoughts having covered every single draw of the pre-trials in Summerside. We will also recap the Pacific Asia Championships, update you on the Canadian Mixed Curling Championships from Swan River, Manitoba. We'll get an update on the U.S. Olympic trials from Jerry Gertz of the Curling Zone. And in our Road to Ottawa feature this week, we interview three-time world champion Brent Lang of Team Cooey. All that more, but first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. Last week, after nearly four years of planning, training, and competing, 28 Canadian teams made their way to Summerside PEI for the Canadian Olympic pre-trials. After a tightly contested round-robin, several tiebreakers, and playoff games, Team McCarville and Team Tippin won the final two spots in a women's draw at the Olympic trials in Ottawa next month, where they will be joined by Team Morris and Team Botcher from the men's side. From the Hack caught up with Jim Cotter of Team Morris, and we asked him about his team's victory over Team Botcher in the A-Finals in Summerside, and also about the lineup change Team Morris made halfway through the pre-trials. Jim, for those of us watching on TV, the A-Final against Team Botcher was certainly a well-played game and seemed to include the type of intensity and focus you would expect in a game of that importance. How did it play out from your perspective at ice level? Yeah, it was a heater of a game. Uh, Both teams played extremely well, and you know what, we played Botcher, uh, Team Botcher quite a few times and we know they're a great team and we knew it was going to be a battle right to the end and uh, yeah, what really came down to, you know, just shot here or there and uh, it, was a, it was a good game. It could have definitely been won by either team and um, you like to put yourself in those situations. I think we've all been there before and so you kind of draw on those experiences and uh, you know what, you just, you know, just think process and just keep trying to make the next shot. Your team started off strong going 2-0 and and then you dropped a couple of games including against Team Casey which was a bit of an ugly game for Team Morse. According to reports from Summerside, you and John went for a cold beverage after that game and the result of that conversation was a switch in the lineup with John taking over throwing Fort Stones. In hindsight, it was a good decision but how difficult of a move is that to make in the middle of such an important event? At the end of the day, um, you know, kind of my thought process is sometimes you have to switch the, uh, the batting order to spark the team, and it wasn't, you know, really easy discussion that we had. And and uh, John and I, we've, you know, we played so many years together now. I think we're pretty adaptable. We work well together, and neither of us have um, ever really cared, who, you know, who throws skip or third. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we just want to win, and uh, that's what it's all about. It's what's best for the team, and. It was an easy decision. We just moved on, and, like, there was nothing, no big deal. And I'm not sure what others were saying or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It was a pretty easy transition. We didn't really think much of it, and it's all good. 
Several teams in both the men's and women's events ended up tied following the round robin in Summerside. The result was a series of tiebreakers which led to some confusion as some of the teams that were tied moved directly into the playoffs while others had to play in tiebreakers. We asked Al Cameron of Curling Canada if organizers followed a pre-established tiebreaker format or if they had to improvise when no fewer than three teams finished tied for playoff spots in each of the men's and women's round robin pools. The speculation from many is that Curling Canada got caught off guard somewhat, which led to confusion and frustration among some of the players. Well, it's the same process that we use in every competition that has ever been on by Curling Canada uh, since the last shot draw uh, measurements were, were started. And it really doesn't matter how many teams are tied. The same procedures are always followed, which is to say that when teams are tied, the first tiebreaker is head-to-head within the pool of tied teams. So if two teams are tied, uh, the tiebreaker is who won, who beat who in the round robin. If multiple teams are tied, then, uh, then you've do the round, the record head-to-head within the pool of tied teams. And if that's unresolvable, then it goes to draw shot challenge, uh, the pregame draw to the button distance. Um, So it's a procedure that's in place at at every event, and we weren't caught off guard. I mean, uh, I can tell you that uh, we had every scenario covered, uh, but it's kind of pointless to make them public until we know exactly what happened, until the last rock or the last draw is is thrown so, and the teams, A, were aware of the tie-breaking scenarios, uh, rules, because it's in the curling rule book that how ties are broken, and it was also in the team meeting document. And uh, B, we had the information on the actual times uh, to the teams within a half hour of the last rock being thrown or the last draw. Uh, it was just a matter of uh, scheduling uh, around the Remembrance Day ceremony, as well as the playoff draws, as well as knowing uh, what ice is available and what teams have played on what ice. So that's got to be sorted out. But uh, under the circumstances, those teams uh, had the information within a half hour at the most of, of the last game. Russ Howard was on site in Summerside as part of the broadcasting for TSN. We spoke to Russ to get his take on the pre-trials. We discussed whether the teams that successfully earned trial spots in Summerside will be able to challenge in Ottawa. And we spoke about the performance of his brother Glenn, whose team made a nice run in Summerside going undefeated in the round robin before losing to Team Botcher twice in the playoffs, including in the B final. Russ, I want to start by touching on the strength of the field in Summerside for both the men and the women, which showed the depth of curling in Canada. There were easily six to eight teams in each of the men's and women's events that could have won a spot at the trials without their victory coming across as a major upset. Oh, that's that's well said. That's exactly, and that's exactly what happened. It's funny how, because it's a pre-trials, everybody thinks it's all the guys that couldn't make it to the trials, which is absolutely true, but it, it's such a fine line, especially in curling. We've got so much depth. That was our leading story from our producer, Scott Higgins. He said, you know, think about this for a minute. He said, if you're in Scotland, Sweden, Switzerland, you name it, anywhere, um, you know, we, we've got seven teams qualified, and there's another, what, uh, what do we have, 12 in each pool? Or, two, you know, what do we have, seven, 14, 14 on um, each side. Like, think of that depth. We're, we're going, you're going back uh, over 20 teams in each side, male and female, that uh, are world class. They really are. Sure, somebody came last, somebody came first, but the record spoke for itself. Virtually everybody was hovering around that three and three mark. And uh, you're right, uh, Gunlickson played great. Mayer played great. Sherry Madal was right there till the end. Glenn was still a little bitter end. Uh, they're, they're, it could have gone any way, really. Each of the skips of the pre-trials had played important games in their careers before, but did Team Morris have an advantage in part because Johnny Moe has experienced just about everything in the sport, 
including the stress and pressure of playing and winning an Olympic final, and also the fact that the only other skip in Summerside that had ever won a trials or pre-trials was Shannon Clybrink. Well, there's no question about it. If you watched uh, the, the last three or four games, when it really got down to its, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth end, uh, there was a lot less oxygen out in the ice for most of the players, and, and that's just understandable. So I think the guys with the Briar experience, like my brother, for instance, uh, or Scotty's experience, like Shannon, uh, you know, I don't think it, you know, they, they know how to handle that anyways, whether it's Olympics or Briar, it's a similar pressure. But there's something about the Winter Olympic Games, you're absolutely right, and uh, it's a different pressure. You know, it happens once every four years. I know the year we won, uh, that's the most pressure I've ever felt in my life playing Jeff Stout in the final game because that was literally my last chance to be go to the Olympics and be an Olympian. And I, you know, being as old as I am, I only had three or four cracks at it because the Olympics didn't show up till 98. So uh, it's a different pressure. Whereas you, uh, you lose the provincial final, for instance, uh, you've got next year, but I was very surprised at how well everybody played. The ice was perfect. John Wall did an unbelievable job, but under those type of pressures, uh, some of the uh, shot making was pretty spectacular. Team McCarville won the A-Flight in Summerside on the women's side. They're one of those teams that many people tend to forget about because they play a limited schedule and as a result, their ranking is not as high as it should be for a team of their caliber. Many observers believe that Team McCarville are a legitimate threat at the trials. Do you agree with that? I'll be shocked if they don't. I really do. I've been uh, a McCarville fan all along. I think uh, I think her technique, her uh, oh, I mentioned it on the air, the uh, the uh, wonderful balance delivery, a lot like my brother's, for instance, that uh, serves you well under pressure. I, she could be, if she's not, she could be the best shot maker in the country. Uh, is her team as strong as you know Jones or uh, Holman? We'll, we'll we'll see. Uh, they, they very well could be. I think it's that same pressure you just mentioned that. When it comes right down to it, you know, that's where you have to give the nod to Jennifer Jones or Rachel Holman. But uh, you're right. McCarville's one of those dark horses that nobody knows about. So uh, I, I take the odds and pick McCarville. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty convinced there's going to be an upset because there always seems to be, uh, you know, uh, we had Brad Jacobs was virtually unknown, came through the three trials and look what he did. And I, I can, uh, if anybody knocks off the big two, uh, I think it's going to be uh, uh, McCarville. Team Tippin and Team Botcher won in uh, Summerside, employing a somewhat defensive, often structured approach. Do you think that playing that style can help them be successful at the trials, or will it get more difficult for them in Ottawa? Yeah, I do. I, I really do. I think I think they're underdogs. I think they're going to have to overachieve a little bit, but not much. Uh, the John Morris game with Botcher was one of the best games I've seen in years. Uh, he lost that game, but they, they played very, very well. Uh, he played almost as well in the game against Glenn last night. But it's so hard to predict curling. Like they, Botcher's team went 3-3, three and three, barely, barely made the playoffs. Then went out, beat Glenn, lost to John. So now they're 4-4. Four and four. Uh, They really weren't that stellar. The, the last two games, the one against John Morris, one against Glenn, I thought they really stepped up to the plate and played well when they had to under pressure, which is quite impressive for a young team. But will that simplistic style beat the top three or four guys? I don't think so. But... Case in point was the Morris game. I, I thought John uh, played the proper style against Botcher, put rocks all, in, all over the place, and uh, he survived right to the last shot. So it, it's it's so close. It just it really is. We we all have our favorites, and say you know somebody like Gushu, we can say oh you know he nobody will beat him. Well, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and um, it, you know Botcher's the type of team that can knock off a lot of teams. Will he win it? I wouldn't put a pile of money on him, but uh, I was ranked ninth with Gushu out of ten teams and. Look what happened there. So it, it's 
it's probably the most unpredictable sport in the world. One of the unexpected stories in Summerside was Team Maillard, who barely qualified for the pre-trials last season, came in ranked 12th in the field, yet played well enough to get two chances at an Olympic trials berth, losing both the A final at Team McCarville and the B final at Team Tippin. As someone who has been through just about everything in the sport of curling, what advice would you have for a young team like them? They're likely quite disappointed with the result right now, but will no doubt benefit from the experience they gain down the road when they are involved in more pressure-filled games. Well, yeah, well said. I, I think it, it, it simply has to be the glass is half full. And uh, I know uh, Brianne Knapp very well. She called two years with my daughter, Ashley. And uh, I think uh, Brianne uh, Mayer was going to play with Ashley one year. She ended up being injured, so she couldn't play. Uh, so we know them quite well. They're, they've always been good curlers. It, I, I, I personally think you put uh, the final two games, or at least the final game, down to just human nature. It's, it was a big, big game for them compared to uh, somebody like McCarville who has been through those wars before. We just touched on that. And, and I think, I think that's the difference. It's just that experience. And so they've now gotten it. So the next time around, they're going to be that much more prepared. And uh, there, I was really impressed with that team did not play well in their final game, but that's just the way it works in curling. you got to pay your dues. And they just did. And I think, I think we're going to hear a lot from that team. They, uh, you know, the brand new, they're not even sure how they throw it. Uh, you know, what happens under pressure is all of a sudden, maybe it's the, somebody in the team starts throwing that hack weight a little harder. You, you need to know that stuff. And you only get to do that if you play a lot and you have to play a lot under fire. And they just did. And, uh, you know, four and two, uh, then they got right to the final. Uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. Your brother Glenn was among a few veteran skips along with Cherry Madaw, Shannon Clybring, Jean-Michel Minot, and Teresa Breen, who all played well at times during the pre-trials. How impressed were you not only by your brother's performance, but by the performances of other veteran skips in Summerside? Yeah, they, they, I think I think it was a little sad for me, to be honest, with Glenn. Uh, I have to be unbiased as a TSN commentator, but I, I, he played so well. Absolutely. So well, he was the number one skip in the round robin. They went through six and zero. Lot one bad inning against Botcher, just one bad end, lost that game, came all the way back, won two more. They were like eight and one playing that final game. You you kinda were hoping the curling gods would get them through and uh have a chance to play in the Olympic trials one more time. I and same with Sherry. Sherry played well, you know, uh Clybrink was close. They it's it's just the way it is. It's 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 they're all good teams now and uh what impressed me was the the veterans, uh, the veterans really hung in there. And finally, Russ, I wanted to follow up on your brother Glenn's performance in Summerside. He and his team became somewhat of a sentimental favorite during the week, especially when they started off so well in the round robin. I can appreciate that you have to stay impartial on the air, but how did it feel to watch your brother play as well as he probably has since his last world championship win in 2012? Well, it's incredible. It just is incredible. And, and, and he truly, he's truly played at that level damn near every game even in during that four or five year period, it's it's uh, the problem nowadays is it it takes four incredible world class curlers to compete at that style, and it, it, I think I touched on it on the air. Uh, you lose uh, Saville, you lose Lang, you lose Madaw, you lose Richard Hart, and he's still out there uh, whipping these kids that are half his age. So it uh, it, it was quite impressive, uh, you know. And and it would have been neat to see him in Ottawa and uh, give it a go, but it, you know that would have been. Uh, 
extremely difficult rarefied air to win that thing in Ottawa. That's one of the best fields I've ever seen. Among the media that were covering the pre-trials in Summerside was Devin Hiru, who covers curling on a regular basis for CBC Sports, who joined us to share his perspective on some of the key stories that developed during the Olympic pre-trials. Devin, one of the teams that many observers believe might come out of Summerside with a spot in the trials was Team Morris, mostly because of their experience, which includes a victory in the pre-trials four years ago. In the end, they did win one of those two spots in Ottawa, but the week did not go without a disturbance in the force, as it were, for Team Morris, which included a mid-event lineup shuffle. You were on site last week. Did you get a sense that Team Morris were just a little bit off from the early parts of the round robin? What did you hear about their decision to shake up their lineup midway through the week? Well, you know, Frank, interestingly enough, this isn't the first time that uh, a John Morris team has made a skip swap midweek in a huge curling bond spiel and has had it paid off because I covered the, what would it have been, the 2015 Briar in Calgary when things weren't really going well. You'll remember Pat Simmons, John Morris, that team as Team Canada in Calgary, and they made a skip swap. And it was actually John Morris who demoted himself to third and put Pat Simmons in the fourth spot. It turned out to be a magical finish, and, of course, Pat Simmons made that spectacular draw to win the Briar there in Calgary. So they did it before, and it was my understanding that uh, Jim Cotter and John Morris, when they were two and two, went and had a beer, and apparently beer, you know, solves everything. So these guys go have a beer in Summerside, and they talk about what they need to do. And let's let's talk about the fact that you you won't meet a more fierce competitor than John Morris. The guy would give up his life to win a curling game. So they're having a beer. They're talking about what they need to do, and they come up with, with this plan to have Morris throw last rocks and, and Cotter throw third stones. And, of course, the rest is history. The guys go on a tear. They play great curling. It's the, it's the perfect recipe. And, Frank, you and I have both watched enough curling to know that when you, when you have that chemistry and you have that trust and belief in one another and that communication, it's all the difference in curling game. That's what happened. And it was interesting to hear Morris talk about how selfish, uh, selfless Jim Cotter is because he's just sort of a silent type on the ice and he's as shy the ice and it's soft spoken off the ice. I had a conversation with them after they won the A final and very humble, happy to be back, but you know, very underwhelming. So these guys have found the perfect recipe, not afraid to make changes. And I think over my years of reporting, any time that I've seen athletes make risky changes, you know, it, it's paid off. Sometimes it doesn't, but most often it pays off have to get out of your comfort zone to win championships. That's what this Morris team has done. And look out now because John Morris is beaming with confidence. That's a horrifying thing for other curling teams in this country as these guys roll into Ottawa. When you and I spoke a few weeks ago, we discussed Team McCarville and how they often fly under the radar because they don't play a full schedule, and as a result, they aren't ranked nearly as high as they would be if they did play full-time on tour. It seemed like they started off a little slowly in Summerside, but once Krista found her groove, they went on what seemed to be one of their patented late-event charges. You nailed it, Frank. That's exactly what they do. And all you have to do is look at this McCarville rank, their history at Bonspiels. They start slow. They find their way into the fourth place spot or a tiebreaker spot, and then they win, and then they win, and then they win, and then all of a sudden 
They're right there on the weekend with the best teams in the country. And it's so fascinating to me in my conversations with Krista McCarvel, who, by the way, celebrated her birthday with two crucial wins to get to that championship game in Summerside. It's so fascinating for me to talk to her because this is a woman that loves her job. She's a full-time teacher in Thunder Bay. She's a full-time mom of two young children. She loves her family. She loves her job. Oh, and by the way, she loves curling, and she's really good at it. And so what this team has done, unlike other teams who have made this their professional sort of career in their life, is they have a work-life balance. Go figure. And and you talk about the fact that they're not on the tour and they're not really on top of the world but when they get into these bond spiels and they figure out the ice and they figure out why they're there and they figure out that they're as good as anyone else, then they get on a roll. And I've talked to Krista many times at Scotty's and events like this, and she says we play our best curling with our backs against the wall. I kind of challenge her on that now. I don't think it has anything to do with with their backs against the wall. I mean, it's it's circumstance that gets them to that point, but I think it's just because they finally get on a roll they can't have a slow start in Ottawa or they're going to by that field. We know that. But if they can find themselves right in the thick of it in the tiebreaker or playoff scenario at the end of the week, again, this is another team like Morris, look out because they belong in the conversation of elite curling teams in this country. I have a soft spot for this team. I've got to admit. I mean, if, if there's a story that you would love to see unfold, it's kind of this McCarville rank because they kind of do their own thing. They swing into these bond spiels and they kind of take everybody by storm. And I have a sense that could happen again, Frank. One of the nice stories that developed during the week in Summerside was Team Howard, who became sentimental favorites as their skip Glenn Howard was attempting to qualify for his seventh consecutive Olympic trials. How did that story evolve throughout the week as it seemed like Glenn, with his team, was taking us on one last enjoyable roller coaster ride? Well, I had been uh, talking and writing about Glenn at least two weeks before the pre-trials because I could anticipate that this scenario might have unfolded. And I'll be honest with you, Frank, when I phoned Glenn, the first conversation we had to sort of set up and write this piece for CBC Sports about him going to the Olympics with Team Eve Muirhead and, and wanting to wear the Canadian colors and the Great Britain colors, it was the same day, in fact, probably just hours before he had heard from Rich Hart that he wasn't going to be able to go. And I'll, I'll be honest, that was a tough conversation. It wasn't a conversation I planned on having with, with Glenn at all. But they really didn't have a plan other than to say that they knew that Adam Spencer, the super spare, was going to be filling in and that Glenn was still confident. But he didn't even know if, if Rich was going to be there as a coach or what the plan looked like. They were just sorting it out. And, of course, what a moment that was to see this team get on a roll, go 6-0. and Everything was happening. They were winning tight games. Glenn had found that magic touch again. Everything sort of seemed to be shaping up to be a Cinderella story. Rich was there as well. I asked Glenn after his sixth consecutive win to start what it was like to have his buddy right there with him. He got a little emotional. He got teary-eyed saying it meant everything to have him there. It looked like this was going to script. And I know people are going to want to talk about the fact that an 8-2 and two, or what was it, 8-2, and 7-2 and two team, Glenn Howard team um, isn't going to the Olympic trials. But that being said, the two losses came against Brandon Botcher, who is going. And so that's, you know, that's one of the things that will be debated. But, man, I tweeted out after all of this ended that it's been a great uh, honor and privilege in my career to have covered some of Glenn's uh, career sort of this last run because we know this is it you know barring any sort of 
situation that his brother pulled off, but barring any sort of situation, this is it for Glenn Howard. And to be there and, and see how much he loves the game and how classy he, he is and signing autographs even after that gut-wrenching, heartbreaking loss just speaks to the type of guy Glenn is. I have all the time in the world for him. He's done wonders for this game. He's going to continue to do wonders for this game, not only in Canada, but, of course, abroad specifically with Great Britain. So it was an honor to be there, to watch it unfold, a sentimental favorite for so many Canadians. I, I'm, I'm upset that he's not going to be in Ottawa because it would have been nice to have seen him give one more run, but it is a changing of the guard, and this is the way this goes. And Brennan Botcher's team, uh, you know, they're going to be a team I think we're going to be talking about for a long time. And, you know, it should be pointed out that Glenn Howard had already won a Briar World Championship before Brennan Botcher was even born. So what a legacy that is. Over to you, Brennan Botcher and team out of Edmonton. A bit earlier, you mentioned having a soft spot for Team McCarville. And to be honest with you, there is one team that grew on me during the pretrials and that I really felt for on Sunday during the B final, and that's Team Mayara. Specifically, there is Skip Brianne Mayara, who had a tough day on the ice in the biggest curling game of her young career. I'm not sure if you were able to see from where you were sitting in the arena, but they kept showing close-ups of her when things started to go sideways early in the game. And at one point, she certainly looked bewildered, understanding what was happening, but not knowing how to straighten the ship, as it were. I'm sure that they are likely still disappointed by the final result in Summerside, but did you get a sense that this might be a turning point for this young team, an experience gained that they will be able to leverage the next time they find themselves in a high-pressure game situation, whether it's a provincial final or at a Scotties, perhaps? That's it, Frank, and I think what you're touching on is is exactly why Curling Canada has these pre-trials. 28 teams is a lot of teams. Uh, there are questions being raised by some great curling minds and other people that I had conversations with throughout the week about why you invite 28 teams. But I think what the experience that Mayur just just had in Summerside is why you have it, so that you're battle tested for those big moments and. You know, when you're in those most pressure-packed moments, if it's a pre-trials, an Olympic trials, or the Olympic Games, you're going to be playing in championship moments. And the teams that can rise to those occasions win the gold medal. The teams that can't have a look of, of deer in the headlights like you're, you're describing. And so this is why I think we have these moments in Canada because we have an embarrassment of riches of great curling teams. But what you're doing is you're cultivating these great curlers for their moments down the road. And I think this, you know, you, you, you only learn from your losses. So many athletes have told me that ugly cliche over the years, but, but it's true. And so Tippin seizes a moment, wins that game, deserves to be going to Ottawa because in a pressure-packed final, she rose to the occasion. For Brienne Mayer and their team, they're going to go back. It's going to hurt for a few days, maybe even a few weeks. But, you know, maybe if you and I are having this conversation four years from now, they're a team that doesn't even have to go through the pre-trials because they were able to win uh, tour championships, maybe a Scotties, maybe it was, and they can trace back a lot of those anxious, nervous times to a pre-trials final. And so uh, as hard as it was to watch, and you're right, I was in the arena and it was just a complete falling apart. They're going to be able to dust themselves off. I have written a lot, whether it be curling, whether it be speed skating, bobsled, whatever it is, 
the sports psychology aspect to high-performance amateur sport in this country is, without a single doubt, Frank, the most important part that athletes are keen on now. And it's the difference. And we saw it play out in that women's B-side final. So, takeaway, Curling Canada had it happen. They had the 2018s there. A lot of them getting valuable experience for the road and we'll see what happens as we move forward with this situation and whether or not teams can learn from those really pressure-packed situations because guess what even some of the most experienced teams are going to have meltdowns in Ottawa so don't just think this is germane to a, a young curling team we're going to see some teams fold under the pressure in Ottawa and that is why you have champions rise when they need it the most. And finally, Devin, at the end of the round, Robin, there was some controversy and some perceived confusion surrounding all of the tiebreakers that occurred with many teams in both the men's and women's events finishing at 4-2 and two or 3-3. Three and three. Now, I don't want to debate whether or not Curling Canada should have gone with the triple knockout format that they use at the pre-trials in 09 and 13, but I'm curious if you notice whether it proved to be a distraction for some of the teams in Summerside. This might be controversial, but I take a bit of a different approach. I can see the argument. I can see both sides. And I think you know from some of my tweets um, and my coverage that at the end of the day, you have to win curling games, Frank. And it did get in the minds there. Specifically, I was worried about John Morris and where his head was at because I was at rink level on that Friday night when all of the pandemonium was breaking out about tiebreakers and who's playing and what game and where people are finishing. And they got an email saying that Morris was finishing third and, and I think he was going to be locked in a tiebreaker and Morris stormed up into, into one of the booths and talked to curling Canada and everything. People were trying to figure out, well, if this person won and they were distracted and guess what? Distractions are going to happen uncontrollables and invariables are going to happen. They're going to happen at the Olympics, too. Look, you're in South Korea. You're not going to have your home comforts. Maybe the ice is going to be bad. Maybe the food's going to be bad. Maybe the draw isn't going to work in your favor. There's going to be all of these things in sports, intangibles, that you can't control. And to see the headspace and how some of the teams handled it, quite frankly, from my perspective, was disappointing because there were excuses. And you can't make excuses if you want to be a champion. I get that there that it was ridiculous. There should have never been curling games played at midnight, both for the players and from my perspective, because I'm still exhausted because of it and it finishing at 3 in the morning. That was ridiculous. That should have never happened. The tie-breaking scenario got out of control. But at the end of the day, you can only control the things you can when it comes to sport. And you have to block everything out. And if you want to be an Olympic champion, I'm sounding like a broken record, you have to rise above it. You might have to play two tiebreakers at the Olympics to get into the playoffs, to get into the championship game. Are you going to complain in your favor or this, that, and the other? Or are you going to refocus, put that out of your mind, rise up on game day and win the day? That is a big thing, and it got in the minds of some of the teams there. And some of it was warranted. Some of the, some of the fatigue was there. But at the end of the day, win your curling games, and you don't even have to be a part of that conversation. Meanwhile, the U.S. Olympic trials are currently taking place in Omaha, Nebraska, with five men's teams and three women's teams competing for the right to represent the U.S. at the 2018 Winter Olympics in Pyeongchang. Jerry Gertz of the Curling Zone is on site in Omaha and joined us to provide an update on the U.S. trials as they reach their midway point.
Uh, Jerry, the U.S. trials in Omaha, Nebraska have now passed their midway point, and I was wondering if you could provide our audience with a report on a women's event where Team Roth seems to be finding their groove, Team Sinclair seems to be playing well, and where Team Christensen seems to be slowly fading a little bit. Yeah, it's been a, a pretty uh, neat uh, event so far on the women's side, and you're seeing the strength come through with, with Nina's team, and, and they're playing really well. Jamie's team, both her losses, she had opportunities in, in the 10th against against Christensen and the extra end against uh, Nina last night to make her last shot and make it really tough on her opponent. She didn't have hammer in either game, but she just kind of, you know, you know, half shots, came up a little short on a draw. If she would have put a tough button, Christensen would not have really had much of a shot for the win. And, and then last night, she just needed another you know, probably an inch of curl, she would have chipped uh, her own stone onto Nina's stone on the button and pretty much locked it in there and would have had the steel locked in too. So, you know, she did lose those two games, but uh, really close matches, and and, uh, they're certainly in the mix still, Sinclair's team. Uh, Christensen, on the other hand, she struggled a bit with her draw weight uh, in the second half so far, uh, the last two games. And and it's, you know, in this field, on this ice, against, you know, are you really two, uh, you know, world-class teams in Sinclair and Roth, you know, you can't do that. You can't get away with that. So uh, one more round to go, triple round robin between uh, these three teams. So they've played twice against each other so far. We'll see uh, where that leads to coming up. On the men's side, it certainly appears like Team Schuster and Team McCormick are distancing themselves from the remainder of the field. How have both of those teams looked so far, and do you believe that any of the other three teams in the field might be able to make a charge over the second half of the round-robin schedule to challenge for a spot in the final? Yeah, Schuster and McCormick are the class of the field, but uh, Todd Burr's close. You know, the Wiley veteran, he's uh, winning games uh, when he needs to. He got a big win against John Schuster yesterday morning. Todd made an in-off roll and chipped uh, Schuster Stone back for three in the fifth end to uh, take a 4-3 lead in that game. It kind of shocked Schuster a little bit, who was playing pretty well in that game. Um, Schuster, on the other hand, they've been up and down a little bit this week. They're, you know, not not quite firing on all cylinders until this morning. They played uh, Heath McCormick, and I actually personally statted that game for the TV broadcast streaming here, and and, uh, Schuster's team was sharp. They made a ton of shots, and and we're looking really good, and they set themselves up for the rest of the week. And, but at the end of the day, Schuster is winning games, grinding them out. Uh, last night, uh, they played uh, uh, Brady Clark and uh, gave up two in the first end. Good start by Clark. And then in the second end, John was facing three Clark Stones with his last. And four years ago, John, I think, would have tried something to, to score something risky that could have led to, you know, an, a big steal. Instead, he drew down into the forefoot and, and kind of conceded the single. I was like, you know what, guys, we're better than this. We can overcome this. And rather than lose the game in the moment, you know, they, they, they made that shot. You know, they settled down. And, and from there, the lineup really started clicking, and Brady was in trouble for the rest of the game. And John actually came away with a pretty comfortable win by the end. Who would be your midpoint MVP in the women's event in Omaha? You know, Vicki Persinger's top shot at lead playing for Sinclair's team. She's kind of been an underrated player all year and a solid player uh, for Sinclair. Of course, uh, Nina Roth herself. You know, they really have played well as a team. Nina's been a, 
a good, confident leader for her, for her foursome. And, and I think, uh, you know, it, it's really good to see them have the success. They had a, a coaching change over the summer with their lineup, and I think it disrupted things a little bit. They had an issue with an entry into a spiel in Saskatoon where the entry was supposed to be in, but some communication issues, and they ended up missing the event because of it. And so, uh, you know, they were in a bit of a disarray in the first month of, of the fall season. And, and uh, Al Hackner came in and has become is the coach of that team. And he's really brought a real calm demeanor to the ice. It, it, it's really neat to talk to Al. And, and you know, he's a, he's a legend in his own right. And, and uh, just what he knows about the game and his approach to the game. But he's been really good for Nina and her team. And, uh, you know, their their success in in Portage La Prairie is no accident at the Canadians that win and 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 then that's continued on here you know they're playing with a lot of confidence and this is a team to be reckoned with Nina likes to play an aggressive offensive game and and it's it's sometimes easier to temper that a little bit bring it back down and 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 pick your spots whereas Jamie's team is a little bit different they they tend to play a little bit more defensive a little bit more open style, and and it's an interesting uh, dichotomy between those two teams. You know, a little bit of offense will get against a little bit of defense. You know, those two teams look like they're going to be the two that make it to the end, and uh, you know, we'll see which style wins out and wins out in the end. And who would be your midpoint MVP in the men's event? You know, you're looking at uh, you know, at the end of the day, Todd Burr himself. They've really battled and ground out here. They played uh, they've played solidly. Um, we'll see, uh, we'll see whether they can get back into the mix here. Uh, John Schuster himself, I think that team is, uh, has got a, a lot of maturity and have come a long way. You know, you look at, uh, Heath McCormick, uh, and Heater has played really well this week. And, and you go back to, uh, last year in the, uh, in, at the Nationals, where Heater had the opportunity to go to Worlds. And the lineup top to bottom was right at the top stats-wise, but they ended up, you know, facing everybody's best game. And so uh, they they ended up missing the playoffs, and it was a really tough result for them. And this team lost four quarterfinals, or sorry, qualifying games this season to get into the money. And, uh, you know, they've been close. They've been playing really well and not necessarily getting the results on the win-loss column. And uh, we'll see if that can uh, can change a little bit. But Schuster's team is really the class of the field here. And, and uh, that last game, they were firing on all cylinders. And if uh, if John and his team can continue that, Matt Hamilton threw a, threw a real good game in this morning. I believe he was somewhere in the 98%. And, and uh, he missed almost nothing. And really well played. If Matt's throwing like that, the rest of the lineup keeps playing the way they are. Uh, Schuster's going to cruise to this title. Finally, Jerry, most curling observers outside of the U.S. were surprised when they first heard that the U.S. Olympic trials would be held in Omaha, Nebraska. You've been on site all week. What's the energy like in the building, and how good of a curling crowd do you have on site there in Omaha? What Omaha, Nebraska is, it's a great amateur sports town. The College uh, World Series is here. They play that uh, every year. Uh, they, they host a lot of uh, Olympic trials here. I believe they've had uh, swimming trials and other events that go on. It's a great college sports town. Uh, they've got some hockey team, football teams here. So, you know, the interest has been huge. 
they sold 2,800 uh, week passes for the event, so that's 2,800 seats sold for every draw uh, before the event even started. It's being played in a nice big uh, size arena here. I believe the capacity is about 10,000 or so. Uh, Baxter Arena here, which is the home of the uh, University of uh, Omaha uh, Mavericks. The hockey team plays out of here. Yeah, really neat atmosphere, and they hosted uh, Curly Night in America here in August and got a lot of great support here, and I think that piggybacking from that event to the next one here now for the U.S. trials has really uh, built a lot of interest and, and fan support around town. And, and uh, you know, it's really neat to come to the U.S. and see so many people who really know little about the game, but they absolutely have fallen in love with it. And, and you see this from place to place where we've gone with these events, Jacksonville to, to Everett uh, last year and, and Kalamazoo and Philadelphia. It's, it's a really neat experience to watch the game grow here in the United States. It's now time for this week's Fresh Pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. The Pacific Asia Championships came to a conclusion last week in Arena, Australia, with South Korean teams winning both the men's and women's events. Team Unjung Kim repeated as champions in the women's event, defeating Japan in the final, while China won the bronze medal, defeating Hong Kong in what was that country's first playoff appearance at the Pacific Asia Championships. In the men's event, Chang Min Kim completed the Korean sweep by defeating China 9-8 in the final, while defending champions Team Morozumi of Japan won the bronze medal with a victory over the host Australians. The 2018 Canadian Mixed Curling Championships are taking place this week in Swan River, Manitoba. Among the better-known players participating are Jamie Cooey and Kerry Galusha of the Northwest Territories, Danielle Inglis of Ontario, and Bruce Corte of Saskatchewan. Northern Ontario is attempting to defend the title won by Trevor Bonnot and his team from Thunder Bay last season. The winner of the Canadian Mixed Curling Championships will represent Canada at the 2018 World Mixed Championships. The European Curling Championships will take place next week in Switzerland. Nicholas Edin of Sweden will look to win his fourth consecutive championship, while Team Sidorova of Russia will look to defend the title won last year by Team Moiseva. Among the favourites in the women's event are Team Muirhead of Scotland, Team Hasselberg of Sweden and Team Tiranzoni of Switzerland. While in the men's event, the favourites will be Team Alsrud of Norway, Team De Cruz of Switzerland and Team Smith of Scotland. Before presenting our feature interview this week with Brent Lang of Team Cooey, let's take a minute to recap the action from Week 15 on the World Curling Tour. At the original 16 WCT Classic, Team Balderston of Alberta defeated Team Brewster of Scotland 8-7. On the women's tour, Team Kubiskova of the Czech Republic defeated Team Sidorova 7-6 in the final of the International Zeo Women's Tournament, while Team Moiseva of Russia defeated Team Englot of Manitoba 6-4 in the final of the Crestwood Ladies Fall Classic in Edmonton. Finally, at the International Mixed Doubles Sochi event in Russia, the team of Skalzine and Idrigaten of Norway defeated the Russian team of Brizgalova and Krushelnitsky in the final to take the title. This week on the road to Ottawa, our guest is Brent Lang, a three-time world champion who currently plays second for Team Kuri and who will be playing in his fifth Olympic trials early next month in Ottawa. Brent joined us to look back at his career, discuss Team Kuri's season, and to look ahead to the Olympic trials. Please note that the interview with Brent was recorded before Team Kuri's recent victory at an event in Penticton. Brent, I wanted to start by getting your impression of your team's season to date. You've played a light schedule so far, made one final and a semi-final on the World Curling Tour, but the Grand Slam seemed to have been a bit more of a struggle for your team this season. It's been a decent season. I mean, we've obviously we've been gearing up for the last four years for the trials, and um, this season when we had our, our typical meeting in June, we 
Well, if we circle the Olympic trials on that and a couple of events leading up to that, I mean, you're not going to just all of a sudden catch fire at the trials more than likely. You need to show some, some signs of playing well before that. And uh, we had a slow, a little bit of a slow start. We didn't have a very good um, uh, grand slam in Regina. Uh, but then after that, we've, we've actually played quite well. We played really well at the Crestwood in, uh, in Edmonton and uh, ran into uh, a Chinese team that played extremely well and, um, and made a shot for three in the third end that, I don't think very many people even play, but anyway, um, so that one was a, a good week. And then we went to Portage and played really well again and uh, didn't have a great semifinal against uh, Crothers, and they beat us. And then we just had a, an event uh, here in, uh, in Alberta, well, I guess Alberta and Saskatchewan in Lloyd, uh, Lloyd Minster, and we played uh, really well, won our first uh, first five games and didn't really have a super close game. We, we kind of controlled every game and then went out and had maybe our worst game of the year against Gushu. And obviously you don't, uh, you don't do very well against a team like that when you play the way we did. So... It, it's been good. We've been playing, you know, it's, it's easy to look at results and say, are you winning events or aren't you winning events? But it's not always quite that simple. And we've just been trying to focus on, uh, you know, making shots. And when we are missing, how close are we? And we're getting closer even on the ones that aren't successful. And we're making more and more shots, putting more and more ends together. Uh, so we're, we're trending in the right direction. So at this point, we're, we're excited about where we're, where we're at and, uh, and looking forward to this weekend in Penticton and, uh, and then ultimately the, the last Grand Slam to St. Marie to Floyd Charles. Now, to go back in time a little bit, you had played with the same skip, Glenn Howard, and the same front-end partner, Craig Saville, for a decade prior to joining Team Cooey at the start of the current Olympic cycle. How long did it take you to feel like you were hitting on all cylinders after joining this new team? We had an up-and-down first year together, the the four of us, and I think we had huge expectations, and, you know, and and being, being the... Having the backgrounds that we all had and the success we've all had on different teams, we had high expectations and we came out that season and we didn't always play great. We had some, some flashes of brilliance, but in general, uh, we didn't play all that well. We had a really good provincial that year and went to the Briar excited and unfortunately our, uh, our main man there, Kevin, got uh, food poisoning for the first two games and, and wasn't quite himself and we got a little bit behind the eight ball and just never quite recovered at that Briar. But yeah, it took a while. I mean, we were... I personally, at least, I was comfortable almost right away with these guys. I mean, they're super easy to play with, and and we we knew each other relatively well uh, beforehand. And we had a couple of events that summer, sponsor events, and um, some golf days to get together and just kind of hang out and see what that was going to be like. So the, the team chemistry aspect of it was was easy right away. And uh, we tried the first year with with me in the house trying to keep Mark and Ben together sweeping, and um, the second year changed that up. And I think that that's a much better dynamic. I think. Uh, you know, Mark and Ben have swept together and played together for so, so long that maybe it was a good time for them to, to spend a, a shot, or two shots and end apart. And it, it, I don't know what it was. Maybe Kevin was better for Mark at the other end. Doesn't, doesn't really matter what it is, but that's, that was what took the longest to find is exactly how we were going to operate as a team. But uh, we're, we're certainly where we need to be now. And, um, but, yeah, it, it took a season for sure. Obviously, you knew Kevin, Mark, and Ben from having competed against them for so long before becoming teammates. That being said, when you are around people on a more regular basis, you get to know them better. What about each of them surprised you the most once you got to know them as players and as people? Well, I can run through them. I mean, with Ben, uh, I think what you see is what you get with Ben, and, and he's one of the, the most liked guys on tour as far as, definitely off the ice. On, on the ice, I'm not sure people like him quite as much, but off the ice, you know, he's uh, one of the more sociable guys and uh, knows everybody quite well. And, and, yeah, he's a bit of an open book. What you see is what you get. You'll hear what Ben's thinking no matter the situation. So um, I wasn't super surprised that uh, at much with Ben. I, I felt like I knew him the best of the, of the three on the team because I'd spent the most time, played in a couple of events with him with Team Martin over the or an event with him with Team Martin over the years. And 
Um, so yeah, he wasn't a, a huge surprise because he's a bit of an open book. Mark, I think, I wasn't really surprised because I knew how hard he worked off the ice as far as his practice schedule and the things he, he keeps himself to, but that was to, to actually see what he does and, and how he does it and how he prepares and how he practices was, um, you know, was uh, not, I'm not going to say it was a surprise, but it was, you know, something that I, I didn't know the specifics of, so I learned about it. And same with Kevin. I mean, he's a quiet guy, so uh, I feel like I know Kevin a lot better now than I did then, obviously. And he uh, doesn't have a lot to say, but when he does, when he does talk, he certainly, he certainly want to listen and pay attention. He knows the game um, as well or better than, than anybody I've, I've ever played with, and so that's been uh, been fun to be a part of that and, and to see how he thinks and how he, he approaches a game because everybody's a little bit different uh, in terms of strategy, and he certainly has a game plan. And we've talked, a, you know, a, a lot about that over the last three or four years, and so that was fun to see. And it's always it's always fun to hear, uh, you know, how how the guys want to play the game. Even Mark and Ben having come in, come from playing with uh, Martin where maybe they didn't have quite as much say as, as I did, certainly they didn't have as much say as, uh, as Craig and I did on our old team or as as much as, uh, you know, Cooey takes input, Kevin was more of a, uh, I'll say he was a more confident fellow that uh, just kind of said this is the way it's going to be at times and, and they went with that because they knew that was the way it had to be. So uh, it's always fun to learn how, how teams interact that way and um, Kevin's fairly similar to Glenn in that way, always open to discussion, but then every now and again it's, you know, he puts the stop sign hand up, and we know that, hey, he's got a plan, and he's ready to do it, so just get out of his way. This will be your fifth Olympic trial, so you are probably as good a person as any to ask how different the vibe is for players at a trials compared to a Briar, a Canada Cup, or a Grand Slam. Yeah, it's it's definitely different. I mean, all of the planning that goes into any season now is, is basically geared towards those trials, whether they be four years away or, or four months or whatever it is, so it's it's a totally diff- different atmosphere, and it's a, it's kind of weird. It's a weird feeling when you're there. I mean, every player and every team is slightly different, but you you know you hear and you see teams doing doing things completely different in a, in Olympic trials here. Like they're trying to do this, they're trying to do that, and and it's not what the teams used to. And it's uh, in my opinion, and what we've chosen to do is we had a plan from day one, and uh, you know with our experience of knowing that uh, the trials is a little bit different, we we had the plan from day one and and kind of stuck to it. It's not about doing necessarily things differently now. You're just trying to fine tune at this point. And I think some teams that I've seen over the, you know, the past, I guess, yeah, five trials. That's that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of misses when you put it that way. But uh, it has been, uh, you know, a lot of great experiences. And you do see that some teams, not that teams don't handle it well, the teams just don't know what to expect. And you go in there, and the, the pressure is higher, obviously, and little things make it, you know, get blown out of proportion at times. And the, you know, one bad loss or one bad break and. Um, you know, is more expensive than normal. So there's a de- definitely a different atmosphere. There's not as much joking around going on between the guys. There's not as much interaction between the teams. Uh, but that's changed over the years just in general in curling. Like, we used to spend a lot more time with uh, competitors off the ice than we do now. Uh, and, and with a lot more teams, like now there's only a team or two that we even really hardly ever see uh, off the ice. So it, that part won't be as different as it used to be. Because it used to be at a bonds where you'd go and you'd play, and at night you'd see a couple teams and you'd have a beer, and, and that was kind of the way the tour went, but it's not like that anymore. And the Olympics has changed that, and sponsorships changed that, and social media has changed that, and there's, you know, the, the level of play has changed, the commitment level and the things you have to do have changed. So I think now the trials is less different than maybe it used to be from that standpoint, but still the atmosphere of it and the pressure of it is, you can't, you can't duplicate it. And it's, uh, you, see, you see it on guys' face, you hear it, even, and I'm not saying it's not going to affect us because it will, it'll affect everybody, and you'll see it, some teams will deal with it it extremely well, and when things start going well early, it's easier to get on that roll. But the hardest part is if things don't start great in that kind of week, 
Um, you really find out what a team's made of because it's not easy to come back from. I can I can tell you that from experience and from watching other teams do it. And there's a reason that in the last four trials, I guess that I think the favorite has only won one. No, and that's not that's not normal, especially in men's curling. I mean, the favorites do well consistently, day in and day out. You can not that you can always pick the four playoff teams at the Briar, the three or the two, but um, most years you, you pretty much you can, and, it, and it's been like that for quite a long time. There's more teams now that are in the mix than than ever before as well. Like every team at the trials now, I, I don't know if I would have said this before. I would have been wrong most years, but you went in thinking that there was three or four teams that really had a great chance, and this year there's. There's at least that many. I mean, there's, there's more than ever, I think. There's more teams at that top level. Team Cooey is one of three teams that have qualified for the trials to date in which all four players have previous trials experience. How big of an advantage is that going into Ottawa? Well, I think it, I think it definitely can be. I mean, I, I'm not sure that it's going to be a difference maker, but anytime you can have experience in any of the big events, big games, in those situations, it's always going to help because you can draw on those. And yeah, Mark and Ben uh, had a great run at the trial. Well, they've had a great run at the trials the last couple. Um, they're in the playoffs of the last trials, and they won the one before that. So certainly, there's no there's no replacement. There's not there's no way you can mimic experience. It just can't it can't be done. And that's why you see, you know, teams like Reed Crothers picking up Craig Savile to come along because he's been there. You know, he's been to the last four trials, and he knows he knows that there's differences. And I, I can promise you that that's a big reason why they picked him. And obviously, he's a great guy to be around, and he's a guy to be around. But he knows what those what those events are like, and Reed does as well. I mean, having been there, but I think the other three are all rookies and. Um, that's that's going to be uh, an adjustment, and not not to say that they won't be able to handle it because I'm sure they will. That's a solid team, but uh, the more experience you can have, I mean, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna sit and, and say that experience doesn't matter. Um, is it required to win? No, of course not, and that's been proven. Jacobs won his first trials, Gushu won his first trials, and it's possible to do without it. But all else being equal, it sure is nice to have. As it stands now, six of the top seven ranked teams in the world will be at the trials in Ottawa, seven of the top 11. An event like that has to be the ultimate grind for a curling team because you really get no games off. And the week is just short enough that if you lose a couple of games early on, you might feel like you're in a real hole. How do you go about maintaining your focus and not get into panic mode if you start, say, 0-2, especially when you consider that a three-loss team has made the playoffs in each of the men's and women's trials safe once since 1997? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a mindset thing, and it's, that's where experience definitely helps. I mean, uh, you have to focus, and, and our coach, John Dunn, is a sports psychologist. I mean, we talk about this kind of stuff a lot, and um, you, you can only control the controllable. So you go in there, and what are we trying to do at the trials? Of course, we're trying to win, but... To be honest, you can't really control if you're going to win or lose. All you can control is, you know, how you play and how you prepare and, and how you react on the ice. And so that's the focus for us. If we go out there, our, our, our goal is to win the trials, obviously. It's the same as everybody else that's going there. That's been the plan for four years. And uh, But there's, like you said, there's, there's no Canada 2, 3, or 4. Like, we've been waiting for that for years, and I don't think they're going to let it happen. So there's only a Canada 1, and there's going to be, I promise you, there's going to be more than one team that plays well at the trials. So there's going to be teams that played well enough to win on any given week they're not going to win this one. And so you, you have to realize that. And all you can really do is, is go out there and, and play well and make the best decisions you can. And um, But as you say, you have to be resilient because you there's not a team that's going to not, you know, they might run the table. Jacobs ran the table last time, but I'm sure that they didn't control every game start to finish. I'm sure there was adversity. And that's that's going to come for everybody. And if you don't think that's coming, then that's that's going to be tough to deal with because it is, it is such a high-pressure situation. And it's a short round robin and things happen quickly. I mean, and it's four years in the, build, in, the, in the making, and then you get there and you start 0-2, and it's, and it's panic time for a lot of teams. I, I don't, obviously, nobody hopes they start 0-2, but uh, this team, as much as anyone, I mean, you've, you've watched this over the last few years, even when we don't have maybe our, 
our A game, we never go away. And uh, even when we get down, like we got down in that Briar final and the Briar semi last year, and we weren't playing as well as we, we wanted to, but we didn't go away, and we gave ourselves a chance to win and won one of those and, and made Bradfield's last one under tough conditions in the in the second one. And so we, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, fight in us and, and know that it's it's not always going to go well, regardless of how you play. You could easily go. We could easily go there and, and play our absolute best, um, catch one bad break or run into a hot team that's playing just as well and it doesn't go your way. That's, that's possible. And that, I mean, you said teams start 0-3. On my first trial, Burtnick started 0-3 and, and he made it all the way to the finals, finished 6-3 and got to the final against Martin and Martin had to draw the full set to beat him. So those things happen in curling. And if sport was a guarantee, it wouldn't be nearly as much fun. So that's part of the Part of the fun, not that the downs and the, the bad breaks are fun, but the you know the the resiliency and the comeback and the the fight that you see in your team, and that's that's why it's so great to be part of a team, and especially so great to be part of this team. Same as my last team, there's no quit, and you know we have a pretty good perspective about what we're trying to do out there, and and realize that uh, it's not always going to go away. But uh, the, you're going to see some crazy stuff. There's there's no no question. That's what we always see at the trials. There's always some upsets, and there's always some some wild games, some big comebacks, big steel wins, whatever it might be. And like you said, the you know, all, most of the best teams in the world are here. So if you think you're going to go in there and cruise through it, um, you're probably setting yourself up for some disappointment. You were at the 2014 Olympic Games in Sochi as an interested observer with your partner, now wife, Jennifer, competing for Canada in women's curling. Did that light an even bigger desire within you to one day compete at the Olympic Games as opposed to being in the stands as a fan and supporter? Yeah, I mean, seeing it from the other side of the ropes was was amazing. It was a different experience, obviously. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the way we had it planned? Uh, but I mean, obviously, it was it was great to see Jen and the girls, and they went there and they played so well, and to be a part of a small part of how they prepared, as far as seeing what they did and how they how they managed it, and what you know what what Jen does to get ready for those games, and what the girls do, and what their team how it operates, and all that was was interesting. And and uh, you know, I always. You can always learn something from any any top level team, which they've certainly been for a number of years. So that that part of it was cool, and it was definitely motivating. You you, mean, you go and you see what it's like to be a part of it, and you know it, it kind of piques your your curiosity even more about what it's like on the other side of the ropes, what it's like in Athletes Village, and what it's like to be out on the ice there. And I mean, watching is great, and uh, but you can only you can only learn so much. So yeah, absolutely, it's motivating. Um, but I haven't uh, you know I haven't struggled for motivation to get to win these trials uh, ever since the first. The first one we got to play in and watching all these teams, people, you're, you're, they're your peers, right? And you watch them go on to play in the Olympics. And, um, you know, the men's team has had great success in the Olympics over the years. And you see them and then you talk to them because most of them have been friends of mine and they tell you about the experience. And um, it, it, it's been great. So that's motivating. I mean, there's no question it was motivating to be there and to watch what Jacobs did. And they started the Olympics, you know, I think 1 and 2 or 0 oh and 2 and, and bounce back. But uh, So there's, there's always great stories. And any time you watch sports, it's not nothing's for certain. And, uh, you know, that's that's amplified at the, on the Olympic stage. But it was amazing to be a part of that and to watch Jen and the girls play so well and set an Olympic record by going undefeated on the women's side. And so, yeah, that's definitely motivating. I'd, I'd like to try that out. I have a few quick-fire questions for you, uh, Brent, before I let you go. You played in 12 Briars, podiumed in 11 of them, so you have experienced a lot at that event. How surreal was the St. John's Briar last season, especially the final, where you were Team Canada, but were clearly the second most popular team on the ice? Yeah, that was a crazy atmosphere, one of the you know one of the better atmospheres we've, we've ever played in, and uh, obviously that province has been hungry for a Briar win for a long time, and it, um, you know, it was like somebody wrote the story, to be honest. I mean, Brad, having been so close so many times and been to so many briars and then 
finally they get a buyer in St. John's, which Brad was a part of bringing there, and it just kind of all came together as a storybook ending sometimes does. And so obviously, the you know, I, I didn't really soak in the excitement of when he made the last shot because we were so disappointed and just want to get out of there. Uh, but it was an amazing event. The people of, of Newfoundland have always been great for curling and, and fun to be around and some of the nicest people you could meet. So, yeah, it was a, it was a cool atmosphere, and I would love it if, if that was, uh, you know, the other way for us one day and, and in, a, in a town where they could behave like that. But Newfoundland's, a, you know, it's a unique place where they're, they're super proud of, of their island and what they have and their culture, and, and you know, they cheer as, as hard, probably harder than really any other fans um, for their hometown teams because over historically they haven't had very many successful ones until Brad came along and um, so yeah it was it was a pretty cool event obviously disappointing for us with the result but you can't take anything away from from Brad and the guys and from the the host committee and and the fans it was amazing. Now I realize that your main objective is to qualify for the Olympics with Team Cooey but you've also had success in mixed doubles with a partner that is also a decent curler. Understanding that both you and Jennifer would rather be at the games with your four-person teams, how exciting would it be to compete in the Olympics with a partner that is not only one of the best women's curlers ever, but also happens to be your wife? Yeah, it, it would be uh, it would be an amazing experience. To be honest, it's not something that we we talk about a ton right now because everything, like you say, is geared to towards the uh, the regular team events. But if 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 uh, we're not successful, if we're both not successful, then we'll certainly quickly ch- you know turn our our attention to that and, and spend the next three weeks before the trials getting ready for that and it would be it would be pretty cool I mean I don't being that it's brand new you, you don't know what it's really like because it doesn't even really seem real yet to be honest but that that's an Olympic sport and but hey the Olympics are the Olympics and if uh, if things don't go the way that we planned at the trials then we're certainly going to give it all we have to, to make that one work. Brent you've been on the ice for a couple of the better highlight shots in recent curling history which one was more impressive, the double takeout by Glenn Howard against Saskatchewan in the 2009 Briar, or Kevin Cooey's triple takeout for three in the sixth end of last year's Briar final in St. John's? Well, it has to be it has to be Kevin's because it was a bigger situation, and uh, you know the, we thought the game had kind of left us already. So, but both super fun to be out there on the ice, and um, yeah, I certainly remember both those quite well. And finally, Brent, I realize that this is a bit of a cliche question, but I've been asking it of all the players I interview for both the pre-trials and our trials preview. What would it mean for you to win at the trials and go on to represent Canada at the Olympic Games in Korea? It's really difficult to put into words, I think. I mean, you, you spend your kind of your whole life, you know, chasing that dream and, and, and playing all those games and watching, like I said, watching the Olympics as a kid and then the curling gets in there and so I, I don't know. I, I'm not. Uh, I don't think I'm, I'm good enough with words to really put it into words. What it would mean, you know, it's a, it's a lifelong dream, and you know, you've had, we've had, I've had been fortunate to to have a lot of lifelong dreams come true with the Briars and all the rest. Just playing in the first Briar and then winning the first one in the Worlds, and but uh, the Olympics is another level. So yeah, it's, it's pretty difficult to put into words. I think. And that does it for this episode of the From the Hack Podcast. My thanks to all of our guests. Join us next week for more interviews with some of the key personalities from the world of curling. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at From the Hack, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.